the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And these are the principles for biblical fundraising. If you're going to talk about a need that you have, you should never make anyone feel guilty about giving. God loves a hilarious giver, not a guilty giver. Now God, as he's giving the instructions to Moses here, doesn't give the answer yet. He's simply setting the stage that there must be an atonement for them to have a relationship if they're going to fail to keep the standard. That's why it's so important when we're sharing the gospel that someone understands their need for a savior. He sees the dust, he knows my frame. Why it's important to have the discussion about sin, about God's standard and how we fall short. Because God's law is a light to our path, it's a light to our soul. It, it shows us that we have a need and it drives us to the cross of Christ. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. The tabernacle and all the beautiful objects in it are just a shadow of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is where we find mercy before God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the tabernacle of God, which is now open to us. He is all we need and the only way to get to God. When we come to Jesus, we find all we need. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Where we're at here in chapter 25, remember the whole theme of the book of Exodus is God has made a promise to a new nation. He had made a promise to Abraham. He'd made a promise to Isaac, to Jacob, the sons of Jacob. But now Israel, who has been in bondage for 400 years, they're there and God speaks to them and he makes a new fresh promise to them that he would lead them out of Egypt, that he would lead them into the promised land. And then the promise that we're concerned with today, that he would be their God and they would be his people. And so now that Israel has entered into a relationship with God through the blood covenant that we saw in chapter 24 of Exodus, the Lord is establishing how that relationship relationship will work between them. And as such, beginning in chapter 25 and all the way through to the rest of Exodus, the book's going to be about worship. It's going to all be about worship. And we start with the place where Israel will worship, where God will meet with them, and that's the tabernacle. That God spends so much time, and if you've ever read through Exodus, this is the way normal, like, new Bible reading starts. You know, you begin in Genesis, and I mean, it's just action-packed. You've got all sorts of interesting material that you're going through there. Abraham's life, Isaac, then you get down to Jacob, and again, it's really interesting there. Joseph, and then you get into Exodus, and you've got the, the bondage in Egypt. You've got Moses, the burning bush, and all the ten plagues, and they come out. And, and then you kind of, you know, as a Christian, so you're kind of reading your Bible, and you're all excited, and you hit chapter 25, and you just kind of start reading about the cubits and bits and bits and bits and kibbles and bits, and, and you kind of just, you know, some of you are old enough to get that. 
you know, you can get here and you kind of start slowing down. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, sacrifice and split the offering this way and cleanse it this way and take the entrails and put them here. And, and usually by the time you hit numbers and it goes, and 14,000 from the tribe of whatever, you're like, I'm done. And that's usually what happens when we read through the Bible. We're, we're entering into a part that's not as action-packed as far as the action is going on, but it's here for a reason. And that God spends so much time giving details on how to worship him, it establishes the importance of doing worship properly. You know, Israel's worship on earth was to reflect the perfect worship that takes place in heaven. So everything on earth had to be made and done according to the pattern of heavenly worship that took place in the heavenly temple. Now, because the tabernacle was a pattern of that, it was never intended as a permanent means of worship. Pieces of the tabernacle and the practices done in the tabernacle were shadows pointing to an approaching reality. You know, when you see a shadow coming, you know there's substance behind it. And it's probably going to look a little bit different than the shadow, but you can get a general outline from the shadow. Well, John 1.14 says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt actually means to tabernacle. Jesus is the substance of the shadow, the reality that the shadow of the tabernacle pointed to. And so in our study of the tabernacle, guess what we're going to be looking to understand? How it points to Jesus. So my goal as we go through material that is a little bit difficult sometimes to go through, that we will find Jesus in it and it will encourage us and show us how all the time God was pointing the way to his son. So With that in mind, chapter 25, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. Of every man that gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of him, gold and silver and brass, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, and goat's hair, and ram skins dyed red, badger skins and shittim wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and for sweet incense, onyx stones and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So here we see that Moses, before he gets the instructions of how to build the thing, God tells him to, when you go down, talk to the people of Israel and ask them to bring an offering. He says, speak unto the children of Israel that they may bring me an offering. The word they're offering means a voluntary contribution. You know, I'm often asked if, if fundraisers are biblical. And my answer is usually, well, it depends on how the fundraiser is done. You know, I mean, truthfully, it really does. If the fundraiser is done in a certain way, then yes, it's okay. If it's done in a different way, then no, it's not okay. We see numerous times throughout the scripture where God tells his servants to ask God's people for funding. You know, there's one time here, there's the time when David builds the temple. There's another time in the Old Testament where they take an offering. There's, you know, in the New Testament, we see where Paul talks about, he, he came and he took an offering for the suffering church that was in Jerusalem. So there's nothing wrong with asking for that. I remember growing up in Calvary Chapel, we believe where God guides, he provides, right? So generally speaking, we don't talk about that a whole lot. We don't mention, hey, we have a need or we need money because the Lord knows the need and and he can move on people's hearts. But there's an extreme you can get to that as well that's not biblical, that Calvary doesn't teach. And I was there for a long period of my life. I would never tell anybody about anything that the church had need for. And the problem is, is that, you know, God says, you know, it's not that I can't speak to people, Will, but sometimes it's just the fact that when you tell them and their heart is moved because they see a need and they want to be generous. So we had a situation at one point where the church was really struggling big time financially. And and we were in in trouble with our landlord. Not They weren't upset at us, but we just having problems making rent. And so finally I said, I I guess I I should approach the congregation. So I shared with them. I said, guys, you need to pray for us because we're struggling financially. Here's the situation. I had about 10 people come up to me and they were mad. 
And they said, why didn't you tell us earlier? We would have loved to have helped out with that. And the Lord just really challenged me. And he said, well, yes, if you're out there always talking about every little need you have, you're going to sound like you're begging. And that's not the way I want it to be. I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't have any needs. So certainly I don't want you to ever sound like that. But at the same time, Will, I've given gifts to people that it's a gift to be generous and a gift to help out financially with things. And if you don't let people know, then they can't help. And I was really convicted by that. And so there is a time to do a fundraiser. There is a time to mention there's a need so that as God moves on people's hearts, that they will be generous and they will give. So we often see fundraisers, though, done very differently today than we see them in the scripture. Here it says that of every man that gives it willingly. The word willingly there means to feel an eager prompting to be generous. I remember the first time I I experienced this. I just gotten a job. I was working at Taco Bell, making four fifteen an hour. I think I worked maybe eight hours a week, and so my paycheck was like thirty seven dollars. And we had missionaries from Spain come in, and the Lord told me, He said, "Will, I want you to give five dollars a month to these missionaries." I was a seventeen year old kid. I knew my heart was moved. I was eager. I wanted to help out. And even though it wasn't much for me, it was the fact that I was contributing and I was learning early on to have that willing heart, so that when God did speak to my heart, that I'd be willing to be generous. Everyone who felt that eager prompt be generous, he says, you shall take of my offering. In other words, no one was pressured. There was no guilt if your heart wasn't moved to be generous. And these are the principles for biblical fundraising. If you're going to talk about a need that you have, you should never make anyone feel guilty about giving. God loves a hilarious giver, not a guilty giver, right? <laughs> he doesn't want us giving out of guilt. Well, I guess they can't go, you know, on the mission trip if we don't support them. The truth is, is that God is moving on people's hearts. And when I have ever made a need known to the body of Christ, so many people's hearts have been moved. And usually, like Israel did, we kind of have to turn people away here and there because people are so generous. The question you might be wondering is, where is Israel going to get the supplies to make these kind of donations? I mean, they're impoverished, right? I mean, they've been slaves. Well, remember, what did God tell them to do when they left Egypt? Collect back pay. He said, go unto all your neighbors and ask them for a gift. And the Egyptians were happy. Whatever you want, take whatever you want and get out of here. The Bible says in Exodus 12, verses 35 and 36, that Israel plundered Egypt. So they came out with a lot of these things. And then they also picked some supplies up along the way through fighting the Amalekites and just from the region that they were in. So what are they supposed to bring? Well, the materials that would be needed, it mentions, would be gold and silver and brass. There's 14 components total. I don't think I need to explain what gold, silver, and brass are. Then it mentions blue and purple and scarlet. These are three colors of yarn. Then fine linen, which would be a fine white cotton fabric, very, very uh, common in Egypt. Goat's hair, which would be a black, dark. They don't have white goats over there in in that realm. They have only black goats, so it would be a black, coarse uh, type of a skin. Ram skins, dyed red. That would be a ram would be completely de-wooled, and then you'd dye their skin red. And then badger skins, which is translated actually sea cow leather. Um, So it's likely referring to the seals who live in the Red Sea. Um, Their leather was often used by the Bedouins for sandals and tent coverings due to its thickness and waterproof qualities. Then I mentioned shittim wood, which is the acacia tree. It grows in Egypt and the Arabian Peninsula in abundance. The wood is very light, but also very durable. It mentions oil for the light, which would be olive oil, spices or perfumes for the anointing oil, and for sweet incense. In other words, the incense was to have a pleasing aroma as it burned. And then it mentions onyx stones, which is not the actual onyx. The word onyx there actually just means precious. We don't know particularly what type of stones they are here. We'll learn later when their use is mentioned what kind of stones they are. For it mentions precious stones and other stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. This would be the high priest's clothing when he would go into the tabernacle to lead the people in worship. We'll learn about that next week 
if I can move quicker than I'm moving right now. Why would they need all this stuff? Well, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary. The word there means a holy place, and in this case, an earthly holy place. God had a heavenly holy place where he dwelt. Isaiah had a vision of that. Here he says, make me an earthly dwelling place so that I may dwell or live among you. According to all that I show you, Moses, he's saying, after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So, The interesting thing there is, he says, I will show you, which actually means to physically see. So whether God gave Moses the instructions as if he saw the heavenly temple, like he gave him understanding to see it in his mind, or Moses actually had a vision of the heavenly temple, we don't know. But either way, God was very clear that Moses was to make the earthly holy place an exact replica of the heavenly one. Now that is very important because Israel would have learned all sorts of pagan ideas about how to worship God. And the Lord would have none of that. If you're going to worship me, the Lord says, it's going to be done the right way, the way it's done in heaven. And doesn't that sound familiar to how Jesus taught us to pray? What did he say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, I can guarantee you there's no murders and no shootings. In heaven, I can guarantee you there's nothing going on the way that it shouldn't be done. That's why we pray and we crave for God's kingdom to come because no matter how hard we try, this world is always going to be a disappointment. It's always going to fall short in some way because it's populated with people like me who fall short. In our prayer life, we pray that, but this was the idea that they were supposed to be an example of, that things would be on earth like they are in heaven. Things aren't done the way that God wants them to be done here, and the world won't be right until they are done the way God wants them to here. So that's why we pray what we pray. When we begin in verse 10, we see that this building project is a little different than most building projects. Most building projects start from the outside in. God starts from the inside out. And in verse 10, he begins with the Ark of the Covenant. He says, now they shall make an ark of shittim wood. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And you shall overlay it with pure gold. Within and without shall you overlay it. And you shall make upon it a crown or a border of gold round about. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in the four corners thereof. And two rings shall be in the one side of it and two rings shall be in the other side of it. And you shall make staves of shittim wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I shall give you. I got some pictures here for you tonight that might help you a little bit with some of these visuals. So that's an illustration of the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know if that's exactly what the angels look like on the top. But other than that, it's pretty close. The ark was a box or a chest is what the word ark means. Numbers first calls it the ark of the covenant. It's also called the ark of the testimony or the sacred ark. Cubit measurement that you're going to see here was usually the tip of the middle finger all the way to the elbow. So it's usually about 18 inches. So the ark is roughly three and a half feet long by two and a half feet wide and high. Not a very big item. Now, it mentions here that it was made from pure gold, which means that silver traces and all other pure impurities would have to be removed from it. And it would be overlaid on the inside and the outside, so you wouldn't see any of the wood. All you would see when you looked at this thing, inside or out, was gold, pure gold. It mentions that there's a crown of gold going round about it, and that's on the top there where you see just the border that's there. It's kind of a border around the top like you might put on any dresser. It's there probably more for looks than anything. And then you see the rings that are two rings there, and then the rods that are there, the staves, that was for carrying it. The ark was to be carried as its only mode of transportation. So the sticks were to remain permanently in the rings. Why? Well, we'll get a better idea when Moses gets the instructions for the lid. 
Verse 17. And you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And you shall make two cherubims of gold. Of beaten work shall you make them in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on the one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims on the two ends thereof. And the cherubim shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And their faces shall look towards each other. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubims be. So here we find that the second component to the box is the lid. Here it's called the mercy seat, or what that translates to is the atonement cover. The cherubim, those angels that are on the top there, they're a class of winged angels who surround God's throne. They're the ones that we see in Revelation that cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We see them best described in the book of Ezekiel. But as I said earlier, they're also in Revelation and the book of Isaiah. Ezekiel 28 declares that Satan was part of their order before he fell. These are the angels that are, their wings are constantly around the throne of God and crying, holy, holy, holy. That was one of his jobs, which makes it interesting that he fell because he was closer to the Lord than many of the other angels were. The reason it's called a seat is because the ark actually is depicting the throne of God. As Israel's king, he is to be carried on his throne, never shipped on the back of a cart. And this is why the lid is called a mercy seat, because it depicts his throne. So the angels are looking at him. The idea is they're worshiping him. And the lid there, we're going to see in a moment what it's covering. Verse 21. And you shall put the mercy seat above upon the ark, and inside the ark you shall put the testimony. Those would be the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments on it. You shall put that inside testimony that I shall give you. Here we find the purpose of the ark. And there I will meet with you, and I will commune with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims which are upon the ark of the testimony of all the things which I will give you in commandment unto the children of Israel. So God is sitting upon the mercy seat, which covers up the law, God's standard, inside the box. Now, that's the only way that verse 22 can be possible, that he would meet with them and commune with them. If there was no atonement seat positioned between God and his standard, Israel could only meet with God if they were perfect. Because every time God would see them, he would see his standard. They would fall short and he'd have to vaporize them. So the mercy seat or the atonement cover was there to cover up the law. The idea was that since there's no way Israel could keep God's standard perfectly, God is establishing here that worshiping him is possible even if they fail, but only through sacrifice, through an atonement. Atonement, it's the means whereby forgiveness is possible. A common thing people say when they're asked if they'll go to heaven is yes. And they'll say, well, of course, because God is forgiving, right? You probably heard that before. Do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? Well, yes, God is forgiving. Now that's true, God is. But that answer also contains a second assumption, which is wrong, that God automatically forgives everyone, everything, no matter what. If you follow up their comment with that question, okay, you're saying God's forgiving, so you're saying just God forgives everyone, everything they've ever done, no matter what they've done. If you ask that question, that will usually bring a pause because most reasonable people don't believe that God should forgive monsters like Hitler. They don't think that God should forgive really evil people, just them. (laughs) But the problem is they can't necessarily say that because admitting it puts their own forgiveness at risk. So the question then becomes, well, on what basis then does God forgive a person's sin? Now, God, as he's giving the instructions to Moses here, doesn't give the answer yet. He's simply setting the stage that there must be an atonement for them to have a relationship if they're going to fail to keep his standard. That's why it's so important when we're sharing the gospel that someone understands their need for a savior. Why it's important to have the discussion about sin. 
about God's standard and how we fall short. Because God's law is a light to our path. It's a light to our soul. It it shows us that we have a need and it drives us to the cross of Christ, the person who made atonement for us. Which is where we now ask, how does the ark point to Jesus? Well, Romans 3.25 says that God sent Jesus to be our propitiation. What's interesting is Hebrews 9.5, if you're taking reference, that's Romans 3.25, the word propitiation. Hebrews 9.5 uses that same exact Greek word for the mercy seat. Same exact word. So propitiation and mercy seat are interchangeable. See, Jesus interpees our mercy seat. He interposes himself between us and God's standard, providing us with a permanent means of atonement so we can be fully forgiven and have a relationship with God. So when we come to God now to seek his face, he doesn't see the law which condemns us, but he sees the blood of Jesus which has washed us. Isn't that awesome? He's our mercy seat. That brings us now to the idea of worship for us. When we worship God, we should be reflecting on what Jesus' sacrifice accomplished for us, declaring our thanks for it and enjoying God's presence as a result, right? So the Ark of the Covenant, what it meant to Israel and pointing forward to Christ what it means to us. The next item that's mentioned in verse 23 is the table of showbread. If you could put slide number four up there, that's the table of showbread. It mentions it here in 23. It says, you shall also make a table of shittim wood. Two cubits shall be the length thereof, cubit the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And you shall overlay it with pure gold and make thereto a crown of gold round about. And you shall make unto it a border of a hand breadth round about, and you shall make a golden crown to the border thereof round about. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and put the rings in the four corners that are on the four feet thereof. Over against or opposite the border shall the rings be for places of the staves to bear the table. And you shall make the staves of shittim wood and you shall overlay them with gold that the table may be borne with them. And you shall make all the dishes thereof, the spoons thereof, the covers thereof, the bowls thereof to cover with all of pure gold shall you make them and you shall set upon the table showbread before me always. This is very similar to the ark. It's a little bit smaller. It's about three feet long, one and a half feet wide and a little over two feet high. So similar to the ark in basic design, but it has a very different purpose. In verse 30, it says that you're going to set upon this table the showbread before me always. Now, what in the world is the showbread? We'll get to that in a moment. We see in verse 29 that there's all these utensils that are there as well. This is where the priests would do the priority of their work inside the holy place. The tabernacle actually is not an enclosed thing. Only the actual building in the middle is the only enclosed place. The rest of it is just an open courtyard. But the tabernacle is the only enclosed place. The tabernacle had two rooms. A small room called the most holy place, or as we know it, the holy of holies. And then the holy place where you had three items. The Ark of the Covenant was in the most holy place. The three items in the holy place were the golden lampstand, which we'll get to next, the table of showbread, which we're talking about now, and the altar of incense, which is not in this passage. When you would walk in, the bulk of the work to put the incense on the altar or the lampstand, the bulk of the work would be done at the table. So that's where all these utensils come in. They would be positioned on the table. So that's where you would do the work. In addition to that, they would have the showbread. Now, what's that? The word showbread means bread that is set before God's presence. Leviticus chapter 24 explains a little bit more. So turn there with me if you don't mind. Leviticus 24 verses 5 through 9. And it talks about baking the showbread. It says, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 cakes thereof. Two-tenths deals shall be in one cake. So just telling you how much to mix. And you shall set them in two rows or two stacks, six on one side upon the pure table before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense upon each stack that it may be on the bread for memorial, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord. 
Every Sabbath shall he set it in order before the Lord continually every week, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And then at the end of that week, it says it shall be Aaron's and his sons, and they shall eat it right there in the holy place, for it is most holy unto him of the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual or continual statute. So the 12 loaves that are baked are obviously representing the 12 tribes of Israel, all God's people, and they would serve, Leviticus says, as two things, an offering and a reminder an offering and a memorial. So just as the manna that God rained from heaven every day reminded them that God was their physical provider, the showbread reminded them that God was their spiritual provider too, that they could not find spiritual life outside of him. Now, as God would prosper the nation materially, bringing them into the land, one of the dangers they'd face and one of the dangers we face when God prospers us materially is forgetting our relationship with God. And so the bread set before God's presence each week was a recognition by the nation that this was their most important need as a people, their relationship with God. As the priests ate that bread each Sabbath, it symbolized the nation renewing their fellowship with God, being reminded of their need and offering their lives back to God, saying, Lord, we need you. You are the only basis of our spiritual health. How does the table and its bread point to Jesus? Well, John 6, verse 35. And you probably know where I'm going with this. Jesus said unto them, I am the what? The bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. You know, while the priest would eat the bread, the rest of Israel would never even experience the satisfaction of fellowshipping with God in the holy place. But we can through Jesus. He's the bread that fully satisfies both God and man. See, Jesus is the place where God's wrath for sin is satisfied forever. Like the incense going up and a sweet smell before God, Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God. And just as there were 12 loaves representing the entirety of Israel, so Jesus' one death is for all of mankind. All may have a relationship with God through him. The tabernacle and all the beautiful objects in it are just a shadow of the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is where we find mercy before God. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the bread of life. He is the tabernacle of God, which is now open to us. He is all we need and the only way to get to God. When we come to Jesus, we find all we need. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, do not be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours, Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.